you know, it seemed appropriate uh, to come to our traditional pulpit today. Admittedly, it looks a little barren. Um, you know, a lot of things have been moved around to create uh, various little mini film studios for all the work that we're now doing in this format. You know, but I've been up here enough times that although you're not physically present, I can still see you in my mind. I mean, goodness, uh, most of you sit in the same seats week after week, so you're still present in one sense. You know, our time is very short today. This is a one-shot message, and I'm being overly ambitious as always, so let me get right to it. My message title today is, This is Our Time. And the core passage of Scripture we're going to look at today is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-8, through 8, and I'm going to read now in the ESV. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me open us in prayer. Father, we, uh, we love you. We're so grateful to be here. We know that you're present, Father. As we look at your word, would you powerfully speak through it uh, to us, to our hearts, Lord. Translate Holy Spirit as only you can. Take these meager offerings, Lord, and multiply them to your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now from here, we're going to work our way back to this passage. But first, let me set this in context. I'm going to do this in layers. The first layer is the historical context in which this epistle, this letter, 2 Peter, was written. And the time of writing is about A.D. 66. 1 Peter, the first letter that Peter wrote, was written around A.D. 64. Much of the known world of the time was under the rule of the Romans. Jesus had ascended to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit some 30 years prior to this point. The ruling Roman emperor of the time was the infamous Nero. While a few positive things are attributed to his reign, he was most known for his insane wickedness. It's established that he murdered his wife, his mother, and most likely his second wife. And I quote now, Nero had a dark side. His impulses began as simple extravagances. Before long, however, stories were circulating that he seduced married women and young boys, and that he had castrated and married a male slave. He also liked to wander the streets, murdering innocent people at random. In AD 64, the city of Rome nearly burned to the ground, and Nero was famously described as singing while he watched the city burn. Roman historian Tacitus 
wrote, Nero fastened the guilt, speaking out to this great fire, and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the Papiels. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Just a horrific time for followers of Jesus. In the rebuilding of Rome, Nero erected a giant golden palace that effectively plunged the empire into debt. It drove up taxes on the people ever higher, and I'm sure this frustration had to have been aimed at Christians as well. Under his rule, Jerusalem was put under siege, and that led to its destruction of the Jewish Second Temple in AD 70. Nero committed suicide, thus ending his reign. You know, and you thought we had leadership issues in the world today. So let's move down to the second layer of context of this letter, down to the people that Peter's writing to. And as I noted, first and second Peter were written about two years apart. They were written to the same people, though. And they're identified in first Peter, Chapter 1, verse 1, he says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are God's elect people. These are Christians. They're now exiles and strangers in the world. The geography described here is northwestern Asia, Asia Minor, essentially modern Turkey today. Now, I don't have a lot of time to unpack this too much, but these are primarily Gentiles. These are pagan converts to the Christian faith. Many of them may have been spiritual seekers that had also been exposed to Judaism through the synagogues. They're not just spiritual exiles and strangers in this context, but these were true resident aliens, the temporary residents in this setting. They were disenfranchised people trying to survive by working in between the cracks of society. In the Roman world, these were people below the level of citizen and above the rank of slave, with a few exceptions on either end. This is a group of people who have found community, belonging, identity in the family of believers. But now they're trying to figure out how to survive in a hostile society that surrounds them. In the same layer of context, we also consider the author of this letter, the Apostle Peter, one of the apostles that Scripture gives us significant insight into. Shortly after the writing of 2 Peter, somewhere between AD 64 and 65, Peter was crucified by Nero's Roman Empire. Now, this was actually no surprise to Peter because he writes in 2 Peter, Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will soon be, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Do you begin to feel the significance of what we're reading here? The weight of the words, 
Under the leading of the Holy Spirit, what would be your final words to those you love the most? Both first and second Peter are his final words to God's people. But like all of Scripture, the Word of God, these words are transcendent. They apply to all of God's people across every generation. So as we move back to our passage of focus, I want you to recognize that this passage is actually a summary, a synopsis, if you will, of 1 Peter. So we'll be moving in your Bibles back and forth between 1 and 2 Peter so that we gain a right understanding of what people, uh, Peter is saying here. So let's begin. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 here. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises. So if we go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter's first step in blessing and guiding his readers in the midst of their struggle is to remind them of the incredible grace of God, the salvation they have through Christ both now and forever that's been promised and foretold from God's prophets of the past. These people were dead, but now have new life. They are born again, shielded by the power of God, assured of their eternal salvation, even in the face of suffering. Peter goes on. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So they are God's own people, called out of this world, set aside in intimate relationship to him through the work of Christ. Here are two good summary verses in 1 Peter to capture those thoughts. 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your formal ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Can you imagine the impact of those words on the original receivers? Those disenfranchised, marginalized, persecuted people in constant peril of even losing their lives. They're now God's very own people. And this is to be the foundation of a right response to the circumstances they find themselves in. Peter continues to build in 1 Peter through a number of what I call therefore responsive thoughts. Essentially, because of what Jesus has done for you, your relationships to one another should transform, no longer relating in destructive ways against one another, but in brotherly love. There are right, godly ways of living under governments and authorities, as well as at home between husband and wife, even in the midst of undeserved suffering. 
some good summary verses. 1 Peter 2, 15 through 17. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Wow, what a startling last comment there. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then one more concluding tie back to 1 Peter I want to make. 1 Peter chapter 5, 6 through 10. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let's shift back now to 2 Peter, reading verse 3 again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life, godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. As we begin to move into verse 5 and following, there's a very important transition, an implied transition taking place here. In essence, God in his grace, mercy, and love has done his part for us. We have gained a knowledge of God through Jesus. Now, this isn't referring to a factual knowledge of truth alone, but an experiential one, a living participation with him, a truly relational knowledge of God. Think John 17, uh, 3. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, as he's praying to the Father, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. So thus, as we come into verse 5, Peter says, for this very reason, this very reason, responding to what God has done, here is our part. These are our right responses to God. What we're moving into is essentially the path of sanctification, of spiritual growth. It doesn't happen by accident, but on purpose. So he says, make every effort to supplement your faith. The word rendered supplement here is often translated add. But it means to supply generously. You get the sense that you can't get enough. Each of these choices is interdependent. I liken this to a vertically upward spiral that keeps repeating towards the likeness of Jesus as we're guided by the Holy Spirit over time. So the first of these seven responses were to add to our faith virtue. Now some translate this as goodness or excellence. Understand, this is not talking about honing our human best but it is increasingly being who we are in Jesus, fulfilling our true purpose in him. 
So you hear the reverberations of 1 Peter, doing the good things of God, simply be obedient, do the good you already know to do through the leading of the Holy Spirit. And of course, stop doing what is inconsistent with your identity in Jesus. So verse five now, generously add to that knowledge a different meaning here than the word used in verses two and three. Here when we say knowledge, it's referring to full knowledge or absolute truth. It can imply a sense of growing, of being in process. But get this, it's a practical applied knowledge. It could also be expressed as discernment. So this kind of knowledge is born out of obedience to God. You more fully know the truth of God by applying it. John 7, 17, Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own. So of course, the core source is the Spirit-empowered Word of God. It is alive and active through the power of the Spirit, according to Hebrews, right? We're to prayerfully soak on the revealed will of God communicated through His written Word in the Spirit and apply it in order to really know it. Verse 6 then, to our knowledge, we're to generously add self-control. The idea here, you're not yielding to your base desires like an animal, acting on instincts or emotions. Rather, you're living through deliberate actions and choices in alignment with the express will and truth of God, which you know through God's word. And both the word and you are empowered through the Holy Spirit. Thus, the last listed fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, right, is what? Self-control. This is that self-control. Verse 6 continues. We're to generously add to our self-control steadfastness. It's really better rendered patience or long-suffering. It's the idea of patiently enduring difficulty and bearing up under pressure. It's that same attribute that the Apostle Paul assigns to sacrificial love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. This is the kind of patience that's born out of trial, according to James 1, 4. And for the believer, it too is empowered and made possible by the Holy Spirit, not human strength, according to Colossians 1.11. So indeed, self-control and patience, you can see, go hand in hand. Verse 6, continuing with steadfastness or patience, we're to generously add godliness. Uh, this virtual space uh, basically describes being like God. We reflect the character of God and attributes of God. It comes out of being in right relationship to him through walking closely in life with God such that our will, our ways, and our goals align with his. In the course of that, we share the love and the care that God has for others. So practically, this means actively repenting of our exposed sin. It leads to making right decisions before God because they're right. And often they're not simple or easy, sometimes even very costly in this world. So we move to verse 7. To our godliness, we're to generously add brotherly affection. Philadelphia is the word in the Greek, brotherly love. 
It's like a familial love, our care and affection for those who are linked or related to us, like fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus, the family of God. There is some rational merit involved, even if a relationship is strained or broken. Sometimes this word is also interpreted as brotherly kindness, and I find that helpful. So from our heart connection, we desire to do good to and for others. Continuing then, beyond brotherly love, we're to culminate and grow in the love of Jesus, in agape love, this final love, self-sacrificial love, the love that Jesus asks of us towards him, displayed in our obedience to him, specifically demonstrated in loving one another as he loves us. John 13, 34, right? This is the love of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 13. The love in the fruit of the Spirit. The love that testifies to the world that we belong to Jesus. John 13, 35. The love that was poured into us from the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5. It is love that does not take into account merit. Rather, people are deserving because God loves them and they are his image bearers. And it's worth noting at this point, as we finish these, these seven virtues, we as divinely created individuals are not somehow turned into clones of Jesus. Rather, the reality of 2 Corinthians 5.17 is what we're speaking to. We are new creations, the recreation of our original divine design plus the indwelling Holy Spirit, who makes the combined capabilities endless through his power in Jesus. So you are becoming more than you could ever be, even without sin, as you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Peter concludes this passage with chapter 1, 8 through 11. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our final layer of context. How do we bring these words home into our context? You know, from the time of our past brothers and sisters, in this case, in AD 64, there have been many generations of Jesus followers, right? Each one sovereignly assigned to their slot in history. And honestly, in our context today, AD 2020 in Redmond, Washington, in our level of affluence and security, we honestly can't relate to the lives of those Christians living under the darkness of Nero. Now, others in our world today can, though. Sources tell us that more Christians are dying for their faith than at any other time in human history today. The darkness is still present. To bring this to a close for the time allotted, let me suggest the following. And I really strongly, uh, strongly encourage you to take some time this week and read 
1st and 2nd Peter together to bring more clarity to what I've said today and fill in the blanks. My first point, in our context within the global pandemic we find ourselves currently, let me suggest to you our situation is far from over. Now, some today are only concerned about the fact that the chicken inventory is uh, depleted at Costco. Some are frustrated over the inconvenience of life right now. Some are in growing states of need, those that have lost jobs. And some have suffered the loss of loved ones. But let me suggest to you, don't underestimate the potential of where this could yet take the world. There could be very dark days ahead for each one of us. Globalization, the interdependency between nations and their economies, massive unemployment, I would tell you the world is primed. Number two, in the midst of our world condition, as a follower of Jesus, don't forget that this physical world is not our current state nor our final state. It is not complete reality. That was the foundation that Peter laid. Remember who we are in Christ, the salvation we have, the real indwelling Holy Spirit at work in us today, and the role we have of being Jesus in this lost world. We are those given the message of the gospel, the good news that many in this world are more open to than ever before. Third point. Be diligent then in the pursuit of your walk with Jesus, with the building up of your faith. Don't be naive and ignore the forces at work against you. You do have an active enemy in Satan and his forces. This was a concern for Jesus voiced for his disciples and for us. Peter concluded 2 Peter with two major uh, other points that I haven't touched on. The first one, there will be people that will try to lead the church, believers, astray. The same forces are at work today. I've heard significant public figures openly declare that the solution to our problem is not about God, faith, or prayer, but our solutions are found in the determination of human will, best expressed in the slogan, science will win. That is a physical world perspective alone, denying the very fact that humans have the capacities we do because we were created that way. But it denies that we are spiritual beings made by God for eternity with him. Human will and science has no potential to save souls for eternity. Point number four, the final point of Peter in 2 Peter is what I will end on here as well. Jesus is coming again. He's our great hope. The Bible describes very dark times leading to the point when Jesus comes for his people. When Jesus comes in great glory and power to initiate his reign and bring a final judgment on sin and evil. When to every person who lived their lives in ways that effectively said, God, I don't need you. I don't want you. I want to live my life my way. God will grant their demand as they move into an eternity without him. What a tragedy. So point five, be aware. Don't ignore the signs of the times, but this is your time in history. You're part of the last days. You're not here by accident. 
be faithfully about the work of God in your life and God working through you to bless the lives of others. Let's be ready for when he comes, whether through the end of our individual days on earth or whether we're able to witness his coming. 2 Peter 3, 14, 17, and 18. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. I'm going to conclude with the very last words in your Bible. That last verse is in Revelation. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. John's response is, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. May God's love and grace accomplish its work in you today as you respond to his word in this time, your time. God bless you. Have a great day.